Great to greet you. Good morning to everybody joining us online. We're so glad to have you with us. If you've got a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the 20th chapter. The Gospel of Matthew in the 20th chapter. A couple of things before we turn our attention to the Scriptures this morning. First of all, just thanks so much for being here. This is that middle weekend of spring break, uh, which is a tough weekend uh, sometimes on attendance, but we've actually we've had great crowds so far this weekend, and we really appreciate that. We had a great time of worship. Uh, and just less than a month from now, we'll be overflowing because it'll be Easter weekend. And to that end, I want to call your attention to this insert in your bulletin this morning. Uh, we have uh, uh, what we call a core four strategy that we follow here at Mount Pleasant, uh, one of the strategies is spiritual influence. We want to be a spiritual influence in the lives of other people. Uh, and we do that primarily through uh, our One Life initiative that you've heard me talk about so many times and that you're already familiar with, most of you. Well, we wanted to make it possible for you, give you a resource to really make it easy for you and personal and meaningful for you to invite somebody to Easter weekend here. And so our communication team came up with this great resource, and I want to uh, encourage you to use that. This is a great way to invite your one life or somebody to Easter weekend in a way that's very personal, in a way that's very meaningful. You can see on the back, there's a place for you. You can, uh, you can write somebody a personalized note, and on the front, it gives all the specific information about Easter weekend. And I want to really encourage you to take advantage of that. Uh, those cards will be in the bulletin for the next few weeks leading up to Easter weekend. The second thing I want to do real quickly is I want to just uh, have all of us bow for a moment of prayer. I'm sure that everybody here uh, almost everybody here knows Maggie Corthell. And you might not know her name, but you know who she is. She's the woman that plays the percussions here almost every weekend, okay? You know who I'm talking about now? And I probably, I think I would guess that if I said, how many of you have been blessed by Maggie Corthell, you would all raise your hands. She literally, honestly, truly is the only person on our praise and worship team that gets fan mail. She gets fan mail. Because she's such a blessing to so many. Well, Maggie and her husband, Rich, who's a wonderful, wonderful guy, were in Fort Myers, Florida this past week, and Rich had a massive, serious heart attack. He's in ICU in a Fort Myers area hospital, and it, honestly, friends, it is not good. It is not good. I've been corresponding with Maggie throughout the week via text, and uh, we've had some folks from our church in that area who've been able to go to the hospital and pray with them and minister to them and be there for them, but it is just not good. And so I just wondered if we all might be able to bow together this morning and just pray for Rich. You may not ever know Rich. He's a wonderful guy. Sandy and I were in a home group with Rich and Maggie several years ago, and what a blessing they are to be around. So <clears throat> would you and all of you folks joining us on, would you just bow me, with me for a moment? Let's pray for Rich Corthell. Father in heaven, this morning we just want to bow and pause and come to you, one heart, one mind, one voice, and lift up our brother Rich, who is in uh, such serious condition in a Fort Myers area hospital this morning because of this massive heart attack. And, uh, you know, it's not good. From a human standpoint, it's not good. But we know that you are the God who holds all of life in your hand. You are the creator and sustainer of life. And you're a sovereign God. So we lift him up to you and we pray for healing. We pray for the, the restoration of his health. And we trust you in whatever happens because we know that you are a God who is good. We sang about that just a moment ago. Your goodness is always there. You're good all the time. And Father, though from our frail and fragile human perspective, we just come to you and we ask for his healing. 
We pray that you would comfort Maggie and their two children and all their family and people that are close to them. Pray that they would feel your presence and that they would feel the love of their church family back here in central Indiana. But we lift up Rich. We pray for his healing and we pray for that together in Jesus' name. And everyone agreed and said? Amen. 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 Well, remember to pray for Rich throughout uh, the days to come. And we got a group of about 40 people who are spending their spring break in the Dominican Republic, building a house and leading a sports camp. So pray for them as well. Let's turn our attention to the scriptures. What we see this morning uh, in our text from Matthew is that same old question that seemed to dominate the disciples. And that's the question of who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Only when we see it this time, it is in a little bit of a different format than what we have seen before. But before we look at that story, let me ask you a question this morning. What comes to your mind when you hear the word ambition? Is your response to the word a positive response or a negative response? We probably are all known someone who was overly ambitious. I'm talking about the person who always has their own agenda, who'll go to any length to succeed, even to the point of sacrificing anyone and anything to get what they want. And as a result, we can oftentimes be guilty of thinking of ambition as a negative thing. But ambition, like so many other things in life, is really not something that's good or bad. It just depends on your perspective and your motivation. Let me explain what I mean from the Scriptures. You know the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. There are two words in the Greek language that are translated as ambition. The first one is the Greek word eretheia, and it literally means electioneering. That's the definition of the word eretheia. And that makes sense because we think of some people with regard to ambition as campaigning for themselves. All they care about is themselves. All they care about is advancing themselves. Well, that word eretheia is found seven different times in the New Testament, and every time it's found in every setting, in every context, it's negative. In fact, most modern translations of the Bible translate the word eretheia, not ambition, but selfish ambition because it's so negative. A good example would be Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 that begins like this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition, those two words, eretheia, or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Uh, Ambition is very negative when it's viewed from that perspective. The second word in the original language of the New Testament that's translated ambition is a mouthful. In fact, I have to kind of pause and look at it to remind myself of how you pronounce it. It's the Greek word philotomeomai, philotomeomai. And it is just the opposite of erethea, rather. It means to be found of honor. Another definition for this word for ambition is to strive earnestly, and in every setting, in every context, in every way, it is a very positive word. And so we learn from the Scriptures that ambition in and of itself is not bad. It just depends on your motivation. It's just depend, it depends, depends on what's behind your desire to be great or your ambition or your ambitious desires. I'm a pretty driven person because I'm somebody who always wants to feel like I'm moving forward in my life, and I'm that way in every single part of my life, including the churches that I've served. I've served as the pastor of three different churches. I've been deeply committed to every one of those churches all the way up to the time 
that I felt like God was moving me someplace new. I remember when I moved from my first church in Texas, which was a church plant back in 1982. I've told you this story many times, to the church that I served in Oklahoma before I came here, a church that was really struggling struggling when I got there. On a good weekend, they might have uh, 120, 125 people. The church had gone through multiple splits, and the church had just gone through a split. Before I got there, people called me on the phone and warned me against going there, saying it was a horrible church. Um, I shouldn't go there. But over the next several years, because I felt God was calling me there, over the next several years, the ministry uh, really grew. God blessed the church. It began to grow exponentially, and things turned around. I remember the very first Easter that I was there, when we had over a thousand people in church, a thousand people—that was uh, that was such an incredible thing for that church because that's a church that had seen in its past far more bad days than it had seen good days, and it was a very exciting experience. Well, back in those days, and some of you will remember this, churches used to send out newsletters in the mail every week. You'd send out a paper newsletter, and in that newsletter that we used to send out, I had a column where I would write, and the weekend after Easter where we had over 1,000, I wrote in my article about how exciting it was to have over 1,000 people and what a blessing that was, and on and on and on. A few days later... I got a really negative letter in the mail, unsigned, accusing me of being too interested in numbers and telling me that I needed to just focus on ministering to people and quit trying to be a big time pastor and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> well, two things. First of all, that's when I decided that I would never again read anything that was sent to me that was unsigned. A rule that I have followed all the way up till today. I've told you about that before, but it seems like I have to remind some of you from time to time that that's the case. <laughs> I've been in the ministry long enough to recognize those letters when they come. We have a, we have a workroom or, or a little break room upstairs, and there's a, a, one wall is a bunch of mail slots, and I'll go in there, and if I pull a, a, a letter out of the mail slot that's in a privacy envelope that has no return address, maybe it says personal on it or, or for your eyes only or something like that, then I pretty much know. And so I'll open it up, and the very first thing I'll do is I'll go to the very end of the letter, see if it's signed, and if it's not signed, I just wad it up and I throw it in the, paper, in the trash. I just throw it away. If you write something on one of your connection cards, you get an extra bulletin or you decide not to fill out your connection card this week and just write me a message that's negative, that's unsigned when the people get that because it doesn't go directly to me. It goes through other people and they get that and they see it's not signed, they wad it up and they throw it in the trash because they know I'm not interested in reading it. That's been a rule that has been in my life ever since then. The second thing is... I was just celebrating the fact that God was finally moving in this church and that on that weekend, over a thousand people heard the message that Jesus was alive. That was an exciting thing to me. And, you know, from a purely personal standpoint, that was exciting for me. I mean, I told you, my first church started with 30 people. And my favorite place that that church ever met before it built a building was in a dance studio because one wall was a mirror and it looked like there were twice as many people there every week. <laughs> I mean, I started in the trenches, you know, and the church there in Oklahoma just had a little over 100 people when I would go, and so that was just exciting. He, see, here's the deal with ambition. Whether ambition is good or bad, whether it's right or wrong, it all, it all depends on your motivation. Ambition is not wrong. Selfish ambition is wrong. It's not wrong to want to succeed in life. It's not wrong to want to do great things for God in life, to accomplish worthwhile things in life. The question will always be, what's your motivation? 
And that brings us honestly to our text this morning. And so if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 20 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. If you're not able, that's okay. Just remain in your seat this morning as we read the Scripture together. It's Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. And really what we've got there is two passages of Scripture. The first one is very brief. It's verses 17 through 19. The second one, where we'll spend most of our time today, is verses 20 through 28. I'm going to start in verse 17. You follow along. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's begin with verse 20. The mother of two of Jesus' disciples, and that would have been James and John, came to Jesus and asked him to grant a favor that her two sons be allowed to sit in the two highest places of honor in his kingdom, one at his right hand and the other at his left. Now, I really doubt, first of all, I really doubt that the mother of James and John did this on her own. She was probably just doing what her sons had asked her to do. And I'm sure Jesus knew that. In fact, here's why I believe that. If you read the same story in the Gospel of Mark, the mother of James and John is not even mentioned. The same story is there, but the mother of James and John is not even mentioned. The other reason is, if you go back and look closely at that story that we just read, when the mother of James and John asks for this honor, Jesus replies, but he doesn't reply to her, he replies directly to the two disciples. He replies directly to James and to John. And as he does, friends, what I want you to see this morning in a few minutes is Jesus gives us some powerful teaching about ambition. And specifically what he does is he teaches us how to avoid falling into the trap of selfish ambition. The context here is serving Jesus, working for Jesus, trying to accomplish something great with your life and the kingdom. Uh, but the teachings that Jesus give us, gives us can apply to any part of life. If you like to take notes, write down the first truth that Jesus teaches us. The first lesson he gives us is this. When it comes to ambition, wanting to do something great with your life, you need to think about what you give, not what you get. Write that down. You need to think about what you give, not what you get. The first thing that stands out to me in this whole encounter is what James and John didn't do. They didn't come to Jesus, whether it was on their own or through their mother, they didn't come to Jesus and say, Lord, we want to do something great for your kingdom. They came to Jesus and said, Lord, we want to be great in your kingdom. We want you to give us a position of greatness in your kingdom. In other words, they weren't thinking about what they could give, they were thinking about what they could get. And there's a big difference between those two things. They weren't interested in the job description. They were interested in the job title. I don't think that's an uncommon thing. 
You know, as a pastor over the years, I've talked to a number of people just like you in all the churches that I've served who've shared with me that they were unhappy or they were frustrated in their job. And it's not uncommon for that unhappiness and that frustration to be the result of a manager or a supervisor or a boss who, at the end of the day, honestly, is just not a good leader. And one of the disappointing realities of life is that oftentimes the competency of the leader seems to decrease the higher or the farther up the ladder you go in whatever profession you're involved in. It seems like it would be just the opposite. And the higher you climb the ladder, the more competent the leader is, but oftentimes it's just the opposite. Why is that? Well, it's because there are people who, just like James and John in our text this morning, are more focused on the job title than the job description. And as a result, they make the pursuit of the job title, however they can get it, more important than developing the necessary skills along the way. But here's the lesson we take from the text. If you want to do something great with your life, if you want to accomplish something great with your life, if you have that kind of ambition, then you remember this. You need to think more about what you give and not what you get. That's the lesson James and John needed to learn. Look back at verses 22 and 23. Jesus responds to the request by saying, you don't know what you're asking. And then he asks James and John this question, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And now, everybody look at me. In case you don't understand what that means, Jesus is saying, can you endure the kind of things that I'm going to endure? Can you endure the kind of suffering and the sacrifice and the difficulty that I'm going to endure. That's what he was asking when he said, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And both of them said, we can. And Jesus responded by saying, you will indeed drink the cup. Now, I don't know how much you know about James and John, but they did. They did drink from the cup that Jesus was drinking. The apostle James, it's widely believed, was the very first one of the apostles that was martyred for his faith. He was killed by the sword as a result of a direct command from Herod Agrippa. That's how he died. Now, the apostle John was the opposite. He's, only, he's the only one of the original uh, disciples, apostles, apart from Judas, who did not die a martyr's death. He died of natural causes as an old man. But that doesn't mean that he didn't suffer and sacrifice along the way, because he did. He suffered physically. And he suffered and sacrificed in that he was, remember this story, he was exiled in his life to the island of Patmos where he was alone. It was in the, on the island of Patmos where he received the revelation from Jesus that became our New Testament book of Revelation. If you went with me a few years ago on a trip to Greece and Turkey, you know we traveled to the island of Patmos. We climbed to the top of the, of the island and we saw the cave of Revelation and it's believed that John lived in. And what a spectacular experience that was. If you ever get the chance to do that, I would encourage you to do it. But he suffered deeply in his life. So they did end up drinking the cup that Jesus was going to drink. But then he, Jesus went on to say, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, let me tell you what Jesus was saying with those final words. He was saying, I can talk to you about what service in my kingdom is going to look like and what it's going to require, but I can't talk to you about rewards or titles. That's out of my control. I can talk to you about the price you're going to have to pay. I can talk to you about the sacrifice you're going to have to make if you want to do something great for me with your life, but God alone will determine what, if any, rewards or titles will come your way. That's out of my control. Jesus' message was, you need to think about what you can give, not what you can get. How many of you know there are greater things in life than just being the one who 
stands in the spotlight. There are greater things in life than just being the one whose name is on the top of the letterhead. You know, the truth is I can get a lot of attention as the senior pastor of this church that has such a great impact on our community and has such a great impact on so many people's lives. But honestly, I play a very small role in many of the things that happen around here, in the majority of the things that happen around here, a very small role. And here's the deal. At the end of the day, I know that. But what's more important is God knows that. So when it comes to ambition, the first thing we think about is what we give not what we get. That's a critical, critical truth that we have to embrace. The second lesson that we see here in this story is you have to understand that there's a price to pay. You want to do something great with your life? You want to accomplish something great with your life? Again, whatever the setting, we're talking about this in the context of spiritual things. We're talking about this in the context of being servants in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. But it can apply to anything. You want to do something great with your life, you've got to understand that there's a price to pay. Again, Jesus said, do you, you do not know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And together, James and John said, yes, we can. Now, here's the deal. We don't know for sure right now in this setting. We don't know for sure if James and John understood what Jesus meant by the cup he was going to drink. We know what it was. It was a reference to the hardship and the suffering that was coming. But we don't know if they understood that. Well, I'm going to pause here for a moment, and I'm going, to, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction as we talk about this second point and this reality of a price connected to greatness, a price connected to accomplishing something great with your life. It's easy to read this story and just immediately label James and John as self-seeking opportunists, and maybe they were. Did you hear me say that? Maybe they were. Maybe that's the way to read it. This question of who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom was something the disciples had argued about on multiple occasions. We talked about that not long ago. It seemed to be a constant topic of conversation. But maybe this story, let's just allow for the possibility that maybe this story was not as self-serving as it seems. Why do I say that? Well, look back at verses 17 through 19. Remember, I told you there was two passages of Scripture here. The first one was verses 17 through 19. Look back at verse 17 and 19. Let's remind ourselves what was said there. Now, as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, everybody look at me. That's not the first time Jesus has told the disciples this was going to happen, right? Everyone say right, even if you really have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> even though we've talked about this multiple times. Not the first time he's told them this was going to happen. They should have known this already. But what I want you to see is that right after that, right after Jesus tells them this is going to be the reality of what's going to happen, the mother of James and John, along with James and John, comes to Jesus and asks for these places of honor in his kingdom. Maybe, maybe James and John did have some idea of the kind of price that they would have to pay. And maybe their hearts were deeply moved by what Jesus has just said, and they were in the best way they could, the best way they could think of. Maybe they were making themselves available to Jesus. They say, we know what's going to happen. We know how difficult it's going to be, but we want to be with you. And so give us these places of honor. But regardless of whether they knew or not, regardless 
of what their motivation was in that moment, Jesus wanted to make it very clear that if you want to do something great for me, it's going to require a cost. There's a price that you'll have to pay. Have you ever been to an ordination service? I'm talking about, let's say, you know, a young man, for example, grows up in our church and he feels the call of God on his heart to dedicate the rest of his life to full-time Christian service, to full-time vocational service in the local church or on the mission field or something like that. And he asks the elders of the church to ordain him, which is to endorse him, to set him apart and say, we know this young man, we vouch for this young man, he's worthy of this service. I would venture to guess that most of you have not. And here's why I say that. Because I've been to a bunch of them, and I don't know that I've been to hardly any that had more than 15 or 20 people there, which is kind of sad when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, ordination to full-time Christian service is never going to make the headline of a newspaper, but it should be a big deal in a local church. But there's only usually a handful of people that are there. We had an ordination service a few years ago, young man in our church. And the truth is, friends, I didn't really know him. I mean, I knew who he was, but I didn't really know him. His participation in the church was largely involved um, in our student ministry. And so our middle school pastor and our high school pastor, they knew him. They knew him deeply, but I didn't know him very well at all. And so I was really surprised when he called me and asked me if I would be the one to deliver the ordination charge, you know, give him a word of encouragement at the service. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And so I, I looked back in my notes this last week to see what it was that I said to him. And I gave, I gave him an ordination charge that really revolved around these three things as he went forward in life, continue to love God, continue to love God's word, and continue to love God's people. And I talked about each one of those things. But... Here's the deal about that ordination service. It, it always stands out in my mind as one of the most unusual, if not the most unusual I ever went to because there was a mixture in the rest of that service that predominantly revolved around this young man's family. There was this mixture of pride and sadness, genuine sadness. His grandfather was there. His grandfather had been a pastor in the local church for what I'm going to guess is somewhere around 40 to 50 years. He was an older, retired man now. He walked with a cane. He had some physical limitations. That was clear. And his mother, this young man's mother, who grew up in the home of that grandfather, that was her dad, who was a pastor, they were a pretty big part of the ordination service. And they both got up to speak, and they directed their comments directly to the young man, their grandson and their son that was going into ministry. And when they spoke, they both wept through the entire thing. And it was clear that there was a deep, deep level of pride in their grandson and their son for his commitment to Christ and his desire to give his life away in Christian ministry and service. But there was also a deep sadness. It came through in their words. They literally talked about how difficult this was going to be. And it was like opening old wounds for them as they thought about what life in ministry had been like. This grandfather thought about what life in ministry had been like for him and the price that he paid and the price that his family paid. And then the mother talked about growing up in that home and seeing firsthand the price that her father paid and, and knowing how difficult that was. And so there was this mixture of pride in him, but great sadness and almost, I would say, almost fear for what the future might hold for this young man who wanted to give his life in full-time Christian service. Why? Because there's a price to pay. 
when you want to do something great with your life, whether it's you want to accomplish something great for God or you just want to accomplish something great with your life, there's a price that you have to pay. When I was a very young pastor and I spent the first, I don't know, 15 years or so of my ministry in really small church settings, when I was a very young pastor, I used to look at pastors who served large churches who were successful from that perspective and think that they had it made. But I had no idea at the time the price that they paid for that success. I had no idea about the pressure, about the demands of their time, the constant criticism and scrutiny, the unreasonable expectations, the difficulty of dealing with the apathy of people, pouring your life into people only to find out that oftentimes they're not even committed enough to show up to what you're doing. Jesus' message to James and John was, if you want to do something great for my kingdom, then there's a price that you're going to have to pay. There's going to be sacrifices along the way, and the deeper you get into it, the more challenging it becomes. It doesn't get easier the longer you do it. It gets more difficult the longer you do it. There's a price that you have to pay. Sometimes the price you have to pay is the negative response that you can receive from the people that are closest to you, and you see that here in this story. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, after James and John and their mother had this conversation with Jesus, we read these words. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant and the, with the two brothers. Why were they indignant? Why do you think they were indignant? Was it, do you think it was because that James and John had asked Jesus for the wrong thing? No. They were indignant because James and John had asked for the very thing they wanted, but James and John were the only ones bold enough to take the request directly to Jesus. In the past, they just argued among themselves, and now James and John took this a whole new level, and they went right to Jesus and asked for what they wanted. Now, I can't stand here today and know and say that I know for certain what the motivation was for James and John behind that request. It could have been selfish ambition. There could, it could have been more honorable than that. But the bottom line is you want to do something great for God, there's a price that you're going to have to pay. There are sacrifices you'll have to make. Sometimes it might be criticism and even rejection from the people that are closest to you. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David wasn't in the army of Israel at the time. He was too young, but his father sent him to take food to his brothers who were in the army. And so he traveled to a place called the Valley of Elah. If you go with me to the Holy Land later this year, we'll visit the Valley of Elah. You'll see where Joseph, where, excuse me, David reached down and found five smooth stones that he would put in his pouch to use in his slingshot as he battled against Goliath. The brook has dried up there, or it'll be dried up during the time that we're there, but you'll see where that happens. Well, when David gets there, it's about the same time that Goliath comes down to the valley and issues his challenge to the army of Israel, which is basically, hey, send your best fighter down. It'll just be you and me, winner take all. And David couldn't believe that nobody was responding to the challenge. In fact, uh, he, he asks in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, these words, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What are you guys doing standing around? This guy's nothing compared to God. How can you let him do this day after day after day? It's clear that he felt 
a strong call to accept Goliath's challenge. Well, a couple of verses later in 1 Samuel 17, 28, one of David's brothers responds and says, and this is what we read, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how wicked your heart is. In other words, he misunderstood David's words. He misunderstood David's ambition, and he turned on him. When it was clear that David was feeling led to go and fight Goliath, accept this challenge, his brother didn't say, hey, David, I'm so proud of you. I'm behind you. I got your back. I'm here for you. Instead, he questions his motivation, his motives. We know how the story ends. We know that David decided that being misunderstood and criticized was a small price to pay for doing something great for God. But I'm going to say it again. If you want to do something great with your life, if you want to accomplish something great for God, then you need to know before you ever even take a step, there's going to be a price to pay. Jesus is teaching that to us in his words to James and John. There's a price to pay. Here's the third lesson, and I just have a little bit of time to do this, so we'll make it quickly. Stephen can come and prepare for our, our response time. Right down next to number three, the bottom line is this. Our greatest ambition should be serving others, not ourselves, but others. I love the way when the conversation between James, John, and his mother and Jesus is over and we read about the 10 being indignant. I love the way Jesus calls them all together, beginning in verse 25 and speaks to them. This is what we read. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. And I love this part, not so with you. In fact, say that with me, not so with you. This is the way it is in the rest of the world, everywhere you turn. There, are, there are, are organizational charts, there are flow charts, there's people who are on the top and people are on the bottom, and they take advantage of that, but that's not the way it's supposed to be with you. You've been called to a different kind of a life. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but the servant to give his life as a ransom for many. At the end of the day, Again, the difference between selfish ambition and pure ambition, righteous ambition, holy ambition, whatever word you want to use to describe it, is going to be your motivation. And the question, if you want to accomplish something great with your life, the question will always be, who's being served with your life? Are you serving yourself or are you serving someone else? Who are you doing this for, for yourself or for someone else? That's the question when it comes to doing something great with your life. That's the question when it comes to doing something great with, for God. I want you to write this down somewhere in your notes. We were made to serve others. The Bible is clear about that. We were made to serve others, and in serving others, we find our strength. But it's not just our strength. In serving others, we find our purpose. In serving others, we find our power. In serving others, we find, in the eyes of God, our greatness. In serving others, we find honor. We are to live our lives as followers of Christ. We are to live our lives with an attitude that says, I'm here for you. That's how we experience greatness in the kingdom of God.